Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm with Peace Catalyst here in the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison. Hi, everyone. I'm Allie, and I am joining you all from Los Angeles, California. So this week, we're having a wonderful conversation with Michael J. Wood, who is an open space coach and facilitator based in Melbourne, Australia. Michael has been providing leadership coaching to leaders in the university, government, business, church, and community sectors for the last 15 years. He has a special interest in supporting people to make positive changes in the world through their work, community, and family relationships, whether or not they're in formal management or leadership roles. His leadership experience combined with coach training helps him to empathize with the demands which clergy, educators, executives, managers, and leaders face on a day-to-day basis. And it also shapes his coaching in a way that people find practical and down-to-earth. So as well as coaching, Michael specializes in dialogic facilitation processes such as appreciative inquiry, open space technology, talking circles, restorative justice conferencing, and contemplative retreats. He's facilitated over 300 open space and talking circle meetings. He's attended two international conferences on open space technology and conducts open space technology and talking circle action learning workshops around Australia. Michael also currently works part-time as community chaplain at St. Stephen's Anglican Church in Richmond and part-time as a coach and facilitator. Prior to this, Michael worked as a university chaplain for 15 years, and he's led several Anglican parish communities. His first book, Practicing Peace, Theology, Contemplation, and Action, was published in 2022. So quite an impressive resume and bio, and we're just very much looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Can't wait to learn from Michael's incredible wealth of knowledge and experience. But before we dive into the conversation, I want to share our peace quote for this week, which is from Jer Swigart, who's the co-founder of the Global Immersion Project. He says, in the context of peacemaking, we don't create environments where we tell people what to do. We create environments where people can discover how they need to grow. All right. Thank you, Michael, so much for being here. Um, To get us started, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you find yourself today as a peace builder, as an author, as an open space coach and facilitator uh, over there in Melbourne, Australia? First of all, thank you for having me. And uh, I'm uh, sitting on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in in Melbourne. So I just want to acknowledge... um, the traditional custodianship of this land. So, um, uh, yeah, well, I'm a relatively recent author, about a year ago, but um, I've been an Anglican priest in Australia for 26 years, um, the last year in Melbourne, 30 years before that in Perth, on the other side of the country. Um, the um, My journey into this work has kind of been through a series of interweaving um Reflections, I suppose, over many years, which uh, is reflected in the title of the book, actually, which I call Practicing Peace, Theology, Contemplation and Action. So those three areas represent kind of three areas that I've been reflecting on 
for a long time. Um, I remember back as a theological student uh, way back in my late 20s, really grappling with the uh, amount of war and violence and terror that existed in the Bible and trying to wrestle with that and finding as I was reading around that that uh, there didn't seem to be a lot of good explanation about how to deal with that or if it was, it was fairly unsatisfying to me. And, in fact, um, the memory for that goes back even further. I remember uh, when I was about 12, maybe even younger, 10 years of age, my one of my parents reading to me the Children's Illustrated Bible. I don't know if that thing still exists, but it had all these um, stories uh, drawn out of the, the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and graphic images, um, including death and mayhem, and me kind of pretty much turning me into an atheist on the spot, I think, uh, which is a... Kind of, I don't think it was what was intended by the Children's Illustrated Bible at the time, mm. but it kind of created all this turmoil in me about how we deal with violence in the Bible. So, and that's something which has occupied my attention for ever since, so for the last 40 years. And um, uh, so that was one important strand. Um, probably the, the contemplative strand uh, started to really deepen for me as a young parish priest a couple of years into my ministry where I was working in very small financially struggling congregations and finding that um, the kind of heroic leadership mode that a lot of, well, particularly men pick up, I think, and I'd certainly picked up through previous careers in the shipping and banking industries, uh, you know, where the, the, role, the job of the leader is to lead from the front and come up with the good ideas and, you know, charge out of the trenches and have everyone follow you um, was a really catastrophically bad way of leading in small uh, communities, bad for the community, bad for me. Um, it was burning me out. I was feeling grumpy all the time. I was um, probably taking that out <clears throat> on my um, close relationships, family, things like that, um, and starting to recognise that the problem of violence was not just out there you know, with other people in the Bible or in church traditions or between countries. It was actually a dynamic that was playing out within myself. And I was working with a supervisor at the time who we were looking at, at my dreams and uh, finding all these kind of really violent images showing up in my dreams, and which is quite unsettling, really, for somebody that proclaimed they were interested in peace um, and committed to peace, and yet all this violence was showing up in my dreams. And I've subsequently discovered this is quite a common thing, that whatever we try to deny in our outer consciousness tends to show up in our inner life in some way. And so that led on a whole journey of kind of dealing with internal um, violence and recognising that any work that's done in peace in the outer world has to start from within and confronting one's own inner violence. And then the third area uh, was kind of reflecting on what that would mean for the way I led church communities and recognising that this heroic leadership mode, which um, was so destructive, really, to myself and to others, was needed to change. And that, at that point, I was introduced through a friend, through my supervisor, actually, to a, a man, Brendan McKay, who became a, a really close colleague and friend and mentor for many years, who introduced me to open space technology, which was a particular way of bringing people together to talk about complex questions and issues. And then subsequently uh, learning about talking circles and restorative justice process and so forth, all of which is circular, collaborative-based, much more of a hosting approach to leadership. 
and finding that this was incredibly life-giving for me yeah. and I think for others as well. So all of this was kind of playing out and interweaving and I was trying to look for the relationships between nonviolent theology, the way we deal with our own internal violence through contemplation and prayer and uh, the way that plays itself out in the way we actually lead in communities, families, workplaces, and seeing where the, dot, the dots joined and realising that all those um, those three main areas all connect to each other and mutually support each other in a kind of a, uh, a positive cycle. So that's, uh, uh, and, th- and then I started to work in the private sector as well as the church, doing coaching and leadership development and um, collaborative design work with churches and small communities and recognising it started to label all of this really as the practice of peace. So not peace in the sense of, you know, the high-level peace that we often talk about, about mediation or um, between conflicted communities, which is incredibly important work, not something that I do a lot of, um, but just thinking this is an everyday practice that we can bring into our lives, how we treat each other and our families um, when we go to work, which is often the place that people experience the the most violence actually is when they walk into the door of their workplace in the morning. So what would it mean to reflect on what does it mean for everyday people, and particularly people of Christian faith, which is my primary community, uh, to practice peace from the moment they wake up through the day to when they go to bed at night. So peace, what does it mean for peace to become a way of life? Um, so that's, I'm um, not sure if that answered your question, but that's kind of some background of how I've got to where I am. Very, very helpful background and such an orienting question of of what it looks like to practice peace in the daily, in the mundane. Um, So can you describe what open space coaching and facilitation or creating the space for peace is and why you think that's important in the process of peace building or peacemaking especially when we're thinking of conflict transformation. Um, And along those lines, what are some of the methods that you use in these processes? Yeah, so um, the title of the book, Practicing Peace, was a nod to uh, a book by a similar title by a guy called Harrison Owen, uh, one of his first books called The Practice of Peace. And Harrison Owen had devised open space technology, a set of principles for how we create spaces where the spirit can be liberated and and freed, if you like. So he said the first job of leadership is to liberate spirit, which I thought was very cool. It's not something I'd read in any textbook prior to that. Um, And he had a a, a little saying, which I've heard a number of times, and actually became the epigraph for the book, which was, wherever space is opened, peace breaks out. And I thought, that's fantastic, you know, because that had been my experience of work moving into more dialogic processes like circle work. Uh, that peace was often the fruit of the way we structured the meeting, the geometry of the meeting and the principles which underpinned it. And so the converse was also true, most likely, that if um, if wherever space is opened, peace breaks out, could it also be true that whenever space is closed down, violence breaks out or becomes more likely? And so that's an idea I've been exploring in my own reflections. And I think generally that's true, actually. Um, I'm, I'm very happy to be... Uh, to enter into a conversation about that and have that tested, but I think it's true. So uh, if spaciousness creates conditions in which peace can emerge, closing it down can be the opposite. 
In that case, that raises the question, what is it that closes down space or contracts it? And this is where I found the work of an American, French-American um, anthropologist, philosopher, literary analyst, René Girard, um, quite helpful. Because uh, René Girard talked about the nature of human desire. That was where that was his starting point. And he said that human de- we think desire is our own. Yeah. Okay. So I'm thirsty, I want a, I want a glass of water, is a kind of an instinctive desire which is biologically built into us. Okay, so I can't do anything about that. He said desire in human relationships, we often think that we make the choices. Uh, in our daily life. But he said, in actual fact, a lot of our desire is caught from the desire of others. So he called this mimetic desire. Um, so the simplest example of that would be, let's say you've got a couple of toddlers sitting in a room and there's a red fire truck sitting on the floor. Yeah. Neither toddler is particularly interested in the fire truck until one toddler picks the fire truck up. And then suddenly the fire truck becomes an object of intense fascination to the second toddler. Yeah. So the second toddler never knew that they desired the fire truck until the first one picked it up. And then suddenly you've got conflict and the recipe for violence. <laughs> Quite often they're actually at each other then fighting over the fire truck. Well, this, so he said desire is contagious, it's mimetic, meaning it's imitated, and that this follows us right through life. So you, you've probably all seen this. Um, you see this in the Christmas sales or the New Year sales. I think you call them Black Friday, is that right? Um, Black Friday sales, people literally climbing over each other to get to the limited supply. So really what they're actually doing is there's this contagious atmosphere of imitative desire going on, which is leading to escalating <clears throat> competition, violence and so forth. So what's happened in that space is that people have actually become uh, captivated by forces which are much greater than themselves. Yeah, It's not just my desire for that TV, but there's this contagious frenzy going on where everybody's wanting the same access to the same limited resources. So that is what we could could talk about as a closure of space. So we have lost our freedom. We're actually caught up in a kind of a collective vortex of imitative desire, conflict and violence. So anything uh, which will break that cycle, which initially has to happen within ourselves as we notice it going on in ourselves, but also anything structurally that can set up the conditions in which space can open up again and deal with those um, dynamics of rivalry will be a useful thing to do in peace. So to take that to one more level, just to extend the answer to your question slightly, the dynamics of rivalry and desire don't just apply to things, but they also desire to um, <clears throat> apply to intangibles. So, for example, the desire for status or the desire for success or the desire to be right or the desire to be in control. These are the kind of internal aspects of desire which get, can get imitated in workplaces and lead to all kinds of outcomes, emotional, physical, spiritual violence. So what we need to do is to create structures which structure out rivalry and desire as much as possible. So even traditional meeting processes, for example, tend to structure in the dynamics of rivalry. So control of the agenda, right? Control of who comes. 
control of what's going to be talked about, control of outcome. So these are things which are just taken for granted, which often often structured into daily meetings and workplaces. So how would we create conditions in which we can structure out rivalry and structure in potential collaboration? And that's what these good meeting dialoguing meeting processes do. So open space, talking circles, using a talking piece, you know, ancient practice, heavily drawn from indigenous communities often, um, and happily given away by those communities to people in the West who want to learn them. Restorative practices and so forth. So that's what I mean when I use phrase open space. So partly when I said open space coaching and facilitation, I was just looking for a title for the business. <laughs> but really uh, underlying it uh, was these whole dynamics about how we uh, structure our rivalry, structure the potential for collaboration. So it doesn't just rely on the skills of the individual peacemaker, but there's something about the design of the processes themselves which are more likely to lead to peace because of the spaciousness that they're creating. Wow, thank you for unpacking that for us and explaining. And that is so interesting and fascinating to hear about that those dynamics of rivalry and desire. And um, it, as you were talking, it reminded me of also like a scarcity mentality of like, if this person has this thing, that means that I won't get what I need. And so I need to try to get that from them somehow. Um, yeah, exactly. Scarcity is very tied up with it. Yeah. And, you know, kind of, yeah, focusing on um, this idea of what you were talking about before of kind of like the daily practice of, of peace. And, um, you know, in your book, you, you focus on, on that aspect of, of practicing peace in our daily lives. Um, and the title of your book is called Practicing Peace, Theology, Contemplation and Action. Um, could you sketch for us a vision, um, you know, through the work that you're doing and kind of like looking towards that end goal of, of structuring and collaboration? Um, could you sketch a vision for us of, in your own articulation of shalom and what shalom looks like? And perhaps um, if there are any areas of culture, society, or community where you see traces of this vision and um, I guess more specifically, what do you think Shalom would look like in your context there in Australia? I mean, I noticed on your website there's uh, some really lovely reflections about the meaning of Shalom and um, its, its history in Jewish uh, um, tradition, which is fantastic. Um, I was trying to think how, how do I put this into my own words. I, um, I think one phrase that comes to mind is, which is drawn out of restorative justice work actually, is to recognise that the meaning of justice in the biblical tradition is um, not about fighting that we all have the same rights and opportunities and so forth, you know, somehow you've got this and therefore I want it, which can just become mimetic again, um, but that justice is something to do with the right, with right relationships. Uh, and that's highly complex dynamic because what I think is a right relationship in from my perspective might be quite different to what you think is a, is a right relationship. So then the question becomes how do we navigate those differences? Um, as human beings largely navigate 
our humanity through language, through conversation. Uh, it could also be done in nonverbal ways for people, you know, so forth through the body. And but for most of us, we navigate our relationships through the power of language and conversation. So I'm wondering, as I reflect on this more, whether the state of shalom, at least in part, has something to do with the way we engage in conversation. So when we have a, a state of shalom, we have a state in which people have the space, again, to talk about what they care about deeply and to speak with each other about that and listen to each other about that in a way which uh, is respectful, doesn't try to collapse difference artificially, but recognises that the difference is there, but creates a space in which those differences and those similarities and those passions and so forth can be navigated and how we can then say, can we find common ground here at their places in which we can work together and so forth. So I guess, yeah, Shalom is such a big area, but it, I think it's something about um, right relationships and the way we navigate those in, in, in conversational ways. So I look for signs of that when I'm looking for signs of Shalom. And when I look at it in my own community, you know, you see little signs of it without wanting to be trite, again, picking up Harrison Owen's work where he talks about wherever space is open, peace breaks out, or shalom breaks out. I have seen that to be true, actually. So when we have well-constructed meetings, for example, in circle format, very often people will say at the end, oh, my goodness, I feel so peaceful now. So I know peace is more than just a feeling, but it's partly a feeling. It's partly a sense in which I... Through this meeting, I had the opportunity to talk about what I cared about and for that to be heard in a respectful way. So whenever at the end of an open space or a well-constructed circle meeting, I'll very often say, wow, peace just happened there. And that doesn't mean it was necessarily a peaceful meeting. Sometimes people could be getting very fired up. I've been in some open space meetings where people have been literally standing up and screaming at each other. <laughs> But they work their way through that because they're not being controlled and constrained by a facilitator. So the space provides sufficient um, space for them to deal with high conflict and high emotion, whereas traditionally facilitators have tended to go in there and try to settle it all down and make it all nice for people. But if you give people sufficient space, they can actually deal with quite highly charged emotions and still come through to the other end, giving each other hugs and pats on the back which is quite an extraordinary thing to witness. So I think, as you said, somewhere on the website, your website, actually, um, peace is not the absence of conflict or high emotion, but peace is actually something about the conditions in which we can navigate high emotion and extreme difference sometimes. Um, so where do I see that? I see that in meetings that are being opened in that kind of way. Um, I've seen it in some religious communities. I visited the Taizé community in France a couple of times and you just feel it, the, the, the saturation of that kind of environment of uh, peace in that context as being not something we heroically achieve but a deep gift of God that we enter into. You, know, you walk through the front gate and suddenly we're entering into a space of transcendent peace, which has been simply gifted to us. I've seen signs of it in Richmond, where I work, is an inner-city parish. It has one of the largest public housing estates in the country, just down the road, with the lowest socioeconomic indicators in the country. 
and yet uh, they've just recently started what they call a community lunch where people can come along for a free meal. So you get 70 or 80 people packed into this room from about you know, nine different cultures that are living on the estate and meeting each other across cultural divides and talking and, you know, having a meal and, you know, maybe there's a bunch of Vietnamese ladies down there and they're dancing and you get this kind of slightly uncontrolled, slightly chaotic, insanely happy uh, kind of environment being created. So that, you know, I say there's a little sign of peace or the fact that they've just invested finally after 40 years of these estates, 50 years of these estates being built, they just invested a whole lot of money making the grounds look beautiful, so planting trees. So instead of just a wasteland of ugliness, it's become a beautiful garden of beauty, which people are sitting in and the birds come in and people playing with their kids and new playgrounds and community gardens. And that was not a big investment. I think it was $9 million or something to renovate the gardens of an estate that houses 5,000 people. So there, I see that's the conditions of Shalom. Again, space, isn't that interesting? Like creating an environment of beauty where people can meet and have conversations, eat together, dance, play music. So I think that's a beautiful sign of Shalom erupting just in our local neighbourhood. And probably none of those people would say we're peacemakers in the, in the sense they wouldn't use that language. And yet what they're doing is creating conditions of peace. Yeah, thank you. That's that's so beautiful. And it's something that we don't think about very often, I think, in, in our peace building context of like space that we're creating and, and the, the influence and the impact that that has on how we are coming to a dialogue or coming to a conversation about a conflict or about um, a power inequality or whatever it may be, how the, the physical space even has such a huge um, impact. So that is incredible. And as a follow-up, because I noticed when you introduced yourself and where you're from, that you chose to name the Aboriginal land that you're on. I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on Shalom in the context of Australia in terms of relationships to the land, relationships with the Aboriginal people and I know that's like a huge um topic but if maybe you had any thoughts or insights on that as well yeah well we're it's a really important question and um really um growing in awareness now in the European Australian mind over the last 20 years you know it's taken us 200 year plus years to get here Aboriginal people are just often so incredibly patient with us. So Australia was colonised violently by uh, Britain and they had um, uh, a legal fiction which was recognised by our High Court a few years ago as being a legal fiction which the land was unoccupied when Europeans arrived, so called the terra, terra nullius, the, the empty land or unoccupied land. And the High Court finally overturned this about 20 years ago and said it, that's not true, um, that Indigenous people have... Uh, the native title can coexist in many places alongside European title. So that was kind of one bit of the picture, but also um, Aboriginal people increasingly saying we, we're not recognised as that uh, reality is not recognised in the constitution and we don't actually have any voice to directly influence in a structural way um, the decision-making of the national government, national parliament. 
So there's a movement up towards the end of this year for a constitutionally recognised uh, recognition of um, Aboriginal people's existence in the land as the first people here, um, and also to embed structurally a what they call an Indigenous voiced parliament, which would not be an extra wing of government. It would be an advisory panel which would uh, directly speak to government um, about how dis decisions would affect Aboriginal people. This is a huge thing. It's already starting to become quite divisive because certain elements of the community are becoming uptight about it and saying, you know, I won't go into it. It's a huge topic. But um, I think we're recognising that we can't avoid our violent history, that it may not have been me, that it may have been my grandparents or great-grandparents or whatever who were involved in this and that somehow we need to collectively say what happened there was wrong. And it wasn't just wrong through our lenses. They knew it was wrong then. And so there's been some good historical analysis going on to say that even in the context of the time land theft was under international law, was completely illegal in the way it was occurring, but they just chose to bury it. And then there's a whole range of other just traumas that have um, occurred as well, separation of Aboriginal children from their families, um, uh, institutional uh, abuse, all kinds of things. So, you know, we've got this legacy that we can either bury, which is what some of us want to do, you know, um, let's not look at that, or we can, in the interest of right relationships, the heart of justice is to, is to listen to the voice and say, let's have a conversation about this. So then it comes it becomes a question of how we construct spaces in which conversation can occur. You know, truth and reconciliation committees, there's a one set up in our state at the moment, which is the first in Australia being run by the Victorian government, which is, enables people to come and tell their stories and so forth. So none of it's perfect and it's taking a long time to do, but it's part of that history of how we create spaces for storytelling and recognising our past for what it is. You know, which some a lot of it's good and a lot of it's really awful. Did I lose track of your question? I think that's what you asked. No, that's yeah, that's exactly it. Thank you so much. It's great to hear you talking about yeah, what does it look like to restore right relationship and um, shalom in that context. I think that starts with listening. That one, being willing to sit in the pain of hearing the, tra the trauma, generational trauma. Yeah, thank you for for sharing that. Um, I love how you emphasized the fact that, or that there's a, a natural human defense to justify or to explain away the actions of the past as, well, first of all, they belong in the past and um, that, you know, it was different context. And um, I, I just appreciate you saying like, no, we need to, we need to see it for what it is as an injustice then an injustice now. And if we fail to remember it in that way, um, how can we fully reconcile? And so along those lines, I mean, I think it's easy for our theology um, to be shaped by, um, yeah, that self-protective, defensive mode. So, you know, so many, so many voices um, contribute to, to how we see God, how we see justice, like these huge concepts. Um so in your work with peace and nonviolence education, how do you invite people into a theology that, that's shaped by Christ, by who Christ is um, and his practice of peace and of nonviolence? 
And um, what does that look like? Do you have any examples you can share of seeing the the ends of this in in people's lives and, and in communities? Mm-hmm. So the piece in nonviolence in education work we did was largely focused on um, a number of Christian school networks, uh, Anglican, Catholic mainly. Uh, in several Australian states where we worked with a group of educators who were really interested in the way we teach Jesus and nonviolence. And so it was starting within a Christian context. So not to say that the language can't be adapted out into any context, but for us, that's where, as you said, we were focusing on Jesus. And there, I think the really important starting point is to recognise that at its heart, from a Christian theological perspective, we Peace is not something in the end that we create. It's only a byproduct of the gift which is given to us, uh, which is Christ is our peace. So Ephesians 2, you know, Christ is our peace. Christ is the one that breaks down the dividing walls of hostility. So it's a grace that comes to us spiritually. I was always struck by that line as well in um, John's Gospel where Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, I give to you not as the world gives. Because uh, in your website you talk about negative peace, um, which is the same idea as what I'm saying, which is that you can create peace of a kind, you can stop immediate conflict in all kinds of violent ways. You know, the military creates creates peace for us. You know, that's, so that's a narrative. But that's not the that peace that Jesus is talking about. And we often confuse and conflate those two. So Jesus is himself or herself. God is our peace. Uh, that's the starting point. So in contemplative prayer, in our practice, for example, we're opening up space internally and externally to create the conditions in which God's peace can arrive as gift. So that's the primary idea, I guess, is to start there theologically and then to work everything out from that. So then to look at the way Jesus actually operates through the Gospels, for example. So um, the way we do that experientially is when we're working with people, we would sit in a circle. <laughs> we, don't, we have a very minimum number of PowerPoint slides because we don't want to be getting into the situation of, you know, someone standing up in the front talking at people. Not that there isn't a place for that sometimes, but in this work, not so much. So sitting in a circle and so, uh, leading people into an experience of four major areas of exploration. So the personal story, who am I? What has shaped me in my life? What are the people, places and events which have shaped me into the person I am? Um, we, we, we have a structure in which we believe that, you know, to really get into that level of Christ-like peace, you need to investigate kind of four broad areas. So one is who am I? Secondly is understanding culture, the culture in which I am. Um, located and so we work with Rene Girard's work and Walter Wink's work a bit um, on understanding how culture shapes us and therefore potentially leads to violence through mimetic desire and competition because if we don't recognize that that's happening we'll get caught up in it. Um, Recognizing once we see that and we have an experiential sense of that we also start to understand what the Bible means by sin uh, it's not just doing naughty things, you know, slap on the wrist kind of things, but we're actually embedded in whole systems which, um, in which we're caught up, which result in us be- behaving in disrespectful, violent ways to each other. 
So understanding how culture operates um, uh, is a second area. Thirdly, is to help people to connect to their deep resources, um, spiritual resources. So in Christian tradition, you know, particularly resources of prayer and particularly contemplative prayer, because it's in contemplative prayer we catch all the internal rivalries and dynamics within ourselves. You know, anyone who's ever tried to sit down and meditate for five minutes knows that we last about 30 seconds before all the little fantasies start to play out in our minds about being right, being in control, getting even. <laughs> you know, oh, if only I'd said that in this argument, you know, I would have proven that I was right or how am I going to keep control of this situation which seems to be unravelling in front of me. You know, all these dynamics are playing out in our heads. So contemplative prayer kind of helps us open up an awareness of that and to let it go. And then finally, to looking at practices. So what are the practices which create space? So, um, and I guess theologically, to come back to Jesus, the, one of the really primary anchor points for us is um, from Philippians, the idea of in Greek kenosis or humility, uh, so forth, where um, Paul says, God emptied God's self and became in the form of a servant. Right? So kenosis means to empty become empty, to empty oneself, to create a spaciousness in which all this can occur. So kenosis is a primary anchor point for us in this work, which is space creation, space for my, to, to articulate my truth, space to hear your truth, space to enable a larger truth to emerge, which transcends both of us, which comes to us as gift, as divine gift. We can't control it, we can't predict it. It only occurs once we're into the dialogue. So that's kind of the way we've been approaching that work, and the teacher, what the te uh, you know, what the teachers are saying about that is that that's then playing out in their classroom. Yeah, so they recognise that as educators, the modelling starts with them. So one of the teachers said, "Oh my goodness, you know, once I started to do this and teach this in my class, I realised I had to analyse my own behaviour. You know, I can't just talk about this stuff with my students. Teach it like a mathematics equation." because I'm involved in the process. I'm involved in the relationship with my students and when, the way I talk to other staff, the way the school deals with conflict. So what they initially thought was just a teaching peace studies suddenly becomes a much bigger question about the way we create environments within our school, cultures of peace, cultures of shalom, and that somehow the Jesus story in a Christian school is tied up with this. So, wow, you know, like who would have thought? We thought we sent all the kids off to chapel to do their, you know, half an hour a week chapel service, you know, so we did that peace thing over there in the chapel. But now we're realising this is actually potentially affecting the entire culture of the school. And generally at that point, things tend to shut down because it's too scary and it's too big. But then you get, you know, the school principal who says, no, I'm actually going to stick in a little Catholic school in Adelaide who says, this is important work. Uh, we can't teach peace in the classroom outside exploring the culture of an entire school. And you could expand that out to an entire organisation, an entire community or an entire church. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for um, explaining that process more. And I think that's a really interesting point about how you can't just go into one classroom and try to bring that change necessarily or that education without looking at the larger um, structure and culture and system wherever that may be so that's a really important reminder <laughs> you know we've already 
you know, gleaned a lot from what you've been sharing. Um, and I'm sure each of us who are listening have lessons that we've already pulled out from various, um, things that, that you've shared already. Um, but curious what you think could be a lesson for, for all of us, regardless of where we are and what our context is for creating spaces to address, um, you know, intra and interpersonal conflicts or community conflicts, what's perhaps a takeaway lesson for, for those of us who aren't working full time in creating these spaces? Um, how could we, how could we do that at an individual sort of, yeah, everyday life <laughs> type of level? <laughs> well, it's a good question. And, and, you know, I wonder why I wouldn't presume to know at all in your context. Um, and in fact, if I'm not sure how long we've got. You know, I'd love to just reverse the direction of the conversation at this point and say, what do you reckon based on what we've been talking about? And, you know, in your experience, what do you find um, is connecting with what I'm saying and how that might apply in your context? I'm sure a lot of what I'm saying is not brand new to you. You've been doing these podcasts for a long time and um, hearing, I'm sure you're hearing recurring themes. So um, in my own practice, all I can say is I try to meditate each day to get into the habit of calming all those internal dynamics and rivalries which are swirling around in me and becoming more aware of them. And I think some people, you know, I've heard someone say, if in doubt, sit down in a circle and use a talking piece, uh, which might sound a bit trite, but uh, sometimes just really simple things like that can just change everything. You know, sitting in a circle is the architecture of collaboration um, rather than debate. So, yeah, I uh, think... Um, Taking the principles is probably the most important thing. What will what will create space in this situation for respectful conversation, uh, and and what am I noticing in myself as I engage in that conversation, and what are my resources that I bring into this spiritually from my own tradition, whatever that is. If it's Christianity, it'll be Jesus shaped. If it's some other faith tradition, they each faith tradition will have resources. A colleague of mine did some work here on interfaith leadership. And when, although we talked about those four areas, no self, no culture, um, no our spiritual resources, no the practices, each tradition was saying, yeah, I get it. I know what that means in my tradition. So they could, they could do the translation of that. So I think that's the important thing probably is to look at the principles and then see what that might mean. Helpful. Um, I have just a more specific question before we close definitely want to give you the time to share anything else that you might want to leave with our audience or anything but before we do I'm just curious because I attend an Anglican church right now so I'm interested in your particular context how all of this lands within within your Anglican tradition well that is a really interesting question because uh I'll tell you how it lands for me locally in Richmond which is for the last year I've been the community chaplain there so um, when they first hired me to do as a community listening and engagement person, which has morphed into being a community chaplain, they wanted to set it up as a consultancy. Uh, you know, I'd come in and inter- go out into the community and interview people and talk to them and write reports and come back to the parish council with a report and recommendations and so forth. I said, well, I'm not really interested in that job. 
But I said, I'll tell you what the kind of job is I'd love to do with you, which is just to work with you as a facilitator so that we can listen together. And one way we might structurally embed that is to have half a dozen people who commit to this as an undertaking, as a project, and for us to meet together every Friday morning uh, as a community to listen um, together what are we collectively hearing in the Richmond community and to use a talking piece, a well-structured talking circle to do that work. Okay, so to model what we're talking about. And subsequently, I've then taken that work out to done some talking circle work with one of the local health providers and we've done some open space work on food security in Richmond. So to take the principles of dialogue in the well-structured space into the work we're doing in the community as gift and as methodology. So that's the way it's landed for us by actually putting into practice what I've been talking about. We've also, in a couple of places in the country, done some really intensive over 10 years regular systematic work on teaching people how to use talking circles and open space and now starting to move into restorative justice work. So a colleague of mine in a large cathedral in Australia now has thrown out strategic planning, which is often very front-driven, consultative in its design, into an open space collaborative design. So now he just has once a year, he has an open space meeting, invites anyone who's interested to come whoever comes are the right people, whatever emerges out of that one day of meeting of open space, collaborative conversation, totally driven from the floor, that's our plan for the next year. <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's incredibly simple and incredibly liberating for people. So that's the way it's landed for him. In a lot of other places in the church, all, all we get is um, blinds drawn down and we don't want to talk about this stuff. And I think it's because it's too challenging in many ways to our control mechanisms, I think. People have told me that, actually. They said it's too scary. So, um, yeah, that's how it's planned, played out in the Anglican church context. It's very mixed and patchy. Well, thank you for, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I was just so curious. Um... Oh, by the way, I should add to that. Sorry to interrupt. Um, Harrison mm -hmm. o, who devised Open Space, was an Anglican priest. So it's got great theological roots for an Anglican uh, read, read any of Harrison Owen's stuff uh, and you'll pick up the vibe. Harrison Owen. Okay, cool. Well, anything else that you want to leave us with today and something that wasn't said or um, that you think needs to be said again, perhaps? Actually, I did pull out a little, very short little quote here, which I thought I might share. So this is um, an excerpt from a talk given by uh, Timothy Radcliffe, uh, who was a, who's in the um, Oh, I've forgotten what order he's with, order of Catholic um, monastics. And he gave this talk to a congress of um, abbots, uh, Benedictine abbots, uh, at St. Anselmo in September 2000. The talk was entitled The Throne of God. So here's a, a guy, Timothy Radcliffe, from one Catholic order speaking to Benedictines, so a different Catholic order, and he says uh, to them, this is quite a short why are people so drawn to monasteries? Today I would like to share with you some thoughts as to why this is so. I wish to claim that your monasteries, he's talking about the Benedictines, I wish to claim that your monasteries disclose God not because of what you do or say, but perhaps because the monastic life has at its centre a space, a void, in which God may show himself. 
I wish to suggest that the rule of St. Benedict offers a sort of hollow centre to your lives in which God may live and be glimpsed. The glory of God always shows itself in an empty space. When the Israelites came out of the desert, God came with them seated in the space between the wings of the cherubim above the seat of mercy. The throne of glory was this void. It was only a small space, a hand's breadth. God does not need much space to show God's glory. So I'll give that final word to Timothy Radcliffe. That was great. That was, that was great. Yeah. Thanks for everything, Michael. It's really great to learn from you. And I know our audience, I'm sure, will be very excited to, to hear from you. So Well, it's been my you. pleasure and privilege. So thank you so much for having me on. That was such a great conversation with Michael. Really love and appreciate his work and his passion for what he does. Um, and understanding peacemaking in the context of physical space, which is really, really important. And I think something that we don't really hear about or talk about as much um, in the field. So really, really cool to learn from him. I think something that I appreciated about this conversation was um, learning how to confront our own inner violence. And, you know, he was talking about desires that are both tangible and intangible and how that can create competition, which creates conflict. Um, and I mentioned how that made me think of the scarcity mentality. Um, and then that's kind of what leads people to get caught up in these collective vortex of, of imitated desire, conflict, and violence. And I totally agree that, I guess, yeah, I guess when I think about desire, I don't think of it as being inherently something bad or negative, mm. but I, in my mind, I think of like, if, if the ways that we're pursuing desire can lead to causing harm to both ourselves and others, mm. and in that sense can create conflict, but I don't know if I think that it's bad to have desires in general but totally agree with how they could definitely lead to conflict um if we act in such a way to to pursue those desires by like taking advantage of somebody else or um or damaging our own morality through our actions i'm just thinking of like how do we get what we want like we might cause us to lie or to steal or to cheat um but mm. even even with without that, like, yeah, totally understanding this concept of, of how it leads to competition and, yeah, and conflict, which I also don't think, these are just my own reflections <laughs> after listening to Michael, I don't think that conflict is always bad. And I think we, we would say that um, in the context of peacemaking, it's like, how do you work through conflicts? And that's like the important mm. thing. But I feel like what I love about Michael's work is this idea of creating like physical spaces and structures that help people to work through their conflicts. And he was saying like, you know, conflict is unavoidable because of our, our human nature. And so, so it's more about like, yeah, how do we work through them and how do we create structures and spaces where folks can um, become more 
more in touch with with themselves and then working through our own inner violence to become people of peace that then that can become an outward expression where we can build peace with others too um so really appreciate his work and understanding like peace in that setting and that context and how like yeah even our, our physical surroundings can play such a huge role in that process yeah I I hear you saying you know it's analyzing what are the means through which we achieve what we're wanting or hoping for um and that that really being the thing that we need to step back and evaluate um so just really appreciate your reflections I think with that like how you know just thinking about like, how do we, how do we do that? Um, at the very end of our conversation with Michael, we asked him about just practical, practical advice, you know, if there's anything he wanted to leave, leave us with. And he, um, spoke about the power of mindfulness and specifically meditation and, you know, meditating each day to, to analyze those internal dynamics that are swirling about. And, um, I think that, you know, definitely that doesn't always come naturally to, to me, at least, um, to take the time to really intentionally reflect, um, on what my action, what my behavior is driven by. Um, and so just, I, I appreciated that practical advice. Such a great point about those daily practices that we can all implement in our own lives and, I think it's true. Whenever I take time to slow down and and meditate and reflect and give myself space to process all of the thoughts and feelings that are going through all of us each and every day, it really has such a huge impact on how I make decisions, on how I interact with other people, um, how I process my own like experiences throughout the day. And so, yeah, I think that was really, really helpful to get that kind of practical advice um, right. for starting starting with ourselves. And then not doing that in isolation or, um, you know, not, not doing that outside of community because earlier in the conversation when we were asking him, you know, what is Shalom? Um, he, he said, you know, Shalom justice has something to do about, something to do with right relations, right relationships mm-hmm. and how we engage with others in conversation and, um, yeah, just relationship. And he said that, you know, what's, what is justice for me is maybe not justice for somebody else. And so I think just with that in mind, it's like any sort of self-reflection, I mean, it, it is valuable and it certainly would be an asset to, you know, have just like a, a moment, a, a moment with yourself of quiet reflection. But I think there's something about allowing other voices to speak into that, um, to speak into, you know, whether, um, what exactly I'm seeing as justice or shalom or injustice or a lack of shalom, d- does that align with how others, others' mm-hmm. perspectives? And sometimes maybe mm-hmm. not, um, but, you know, yeah. shalom might be enacted just just in, you know, letting other people in, um, and giving others a voice into that. For sure. Yeah, that's so good. 
That's such a good reflection. Thank you, Allie, for sharing that because I think, yeah, that kind of brings it all home with like, how does it connect with the collective journey towards Shalom? If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.